and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're a budding writer, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school run by the major literary and talent agency. Since launching in 2011, over 190 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including critically acclaimed authors Bonnie Garmus, Amelia Hart, Jenny Quintana and Sean Lusk. CBC offers a wide range of inspiring courses that give writers practical advice and demystify the publishing industry. If you have a complete first draft of a novel, and this week's episode leaves you feeling inspired to get your manuscript ready to submit to literary agents, their best-selling Edit and Pitch Your Novel course is for you. This six-week online course includes exclusive teaching videos presented by CBC's founder Anna Davis and agents from the top UK literary agencies Curtis Brown and CNW. Plus, all students have the opportunity to get feedback from one of CBC's expert editors. If you're ready to raise your writing game with an online course, there is an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. Use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of edit and pitch your novel or any other four, five or six week online course. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the literary agent Sophie Lambert. We spoke to Sophie about moving from book selling to agenting, her current role at C&W and the experience of instigating projects herself. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Sophie, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's great to have you on the show. Um, We wanted to start with your uh, life before you became a literary agent, in fact. And we saw that you read English and German at university, but you then worked as a bookseller. Could you tell us about how that came about and what you learned from that experience that you've taken into your subsequent career? Thank you, Simon. Yes, of course. Well, I finished university with, to be quite honest, very little clear sense of what I wanted to do other than go off traveling for a while which perhaps now might seem like a um, an irresponsible sort of attitude to have. Um, but this was in the days of no fees and so on. So I went off traveling and came back and thought that while I was contemplating what to do next, that I would get a job in a bookshop because as an English graduate, that seemed like the most straightforward next step. So I went down Charing Cross Road as it was then sort of 20 years ago or so and handed in paper CVs to all the many bookshops down the road and was very fortunate to get called by Blackwell's Charing Cross Road, which at the time was, I think, bookshop of the year. It was an enormous shop, which is now no longer there. And it was quite a surprise to me, naively, to have a very um, in-depth and quite challenging interview by John Creasy, who was the manager of that shop and quite a sort of legendary bookseller in his own right. And um, it soon became clear to me that everybody that I would be working with at that shop had at least a, a BA, if not an MA, or was studying or were writing or researching. And it, this was an incredibly clever, brilliant group of people who just loved reading and loved books and loved the power of, of books. So I quite quickly got caught up in that passion and after a handful of months book selling and getting to grips with that, I was then offered a sort of junior buying position. So I applied for that and got that job, which was then to 
meet with the respective publishing representatives who would come into the shop and show you in advance of them being published the books that they were effectively selling into the shop. So I had the opportunity then to to become a buyer. Um, and that's what I did then for the next three years on Charing Cross Road was buying all the non-academic titles for Blackwells there. How are you making those decisions in terms of which which titles to buy? It's a very good question. Partly I would be in, initially I was I remember I was sitting alongside colleagues, experienced colleagues who would give me pointers as to the sorts of demographic and the kind of books that would sell in that particular shop. And remember that this was still at a time when Blackwells and many of the other independent shops um, at the time were able to buy on a store by store basis. So they were able to really cater for the customers who came in that particular shop. And we were still given lots of advance proof copies by the publishing reps. And we spent a lot of time reading those advanced books and deciding individually which books we could we would want to promote, which books we fell for personally. And we wanted to press into the hands of the customers who came through our doors. So a lot of it was driven by um, taste and instinct and responding to what had sold. And of course, you you know, you've got very good records on, uh, well, on a very antiquated computer system, but still records of previous sales and how that looked over the last few years and so on. Um, but I remember really distinctly being given the first Harry Kunzru book, The Impressionist, and falling in love with it and making a conscious decision that I would set out to sell the most copies of any bookshop in the country of that particular book. And I did. And it was so satisfying to be able to um, impress your passion for a particular book on, on, on a customer and to make an impact. Um, because why else be in this industry other than to really believe and follow through on the notion that books can change the world and can have a great impact on people. I saw in another interview you gave about that time how you talked about, you know, this was very much a pre-Amazon world, right? A world in which the bookshop was king and you've alluded to how some of those bookshops have, have closed down. I mean, maybe looking at it slightly more broadly and, and in the context of the work you do now, how do you think the, the publishing landscape was different then compared to now and what are the advantages and disadvantages of the changes that have occurred? Well, um, authors and publishers and agents need all the retailers, clearly. Um, but I don't personally think that monopolies are healthy, probably in any industry and certainly not in publishing. Um, the fact is that the high street chain and bookshop is able to be specific about servicing a demographic of community and individuals who come in in a way that you just simply can't do with an online only kind of retail. Um, the people who work in book only stores, so bookshops rather than in a, in a store that sells many other things, including a small number of books like a supermarket, are there only because that's what they want to do. So it's in their interest to have as wide ranging a list of titles on offer. It's in their interest to read as many of them and to try and be part of the success of a title. 
And at the time, so 20 years ago, there was a real community on Charing Cross Road and just off it in the small roads like Cecil Court of booksellers. And we had, you know, people would come into Blackwell's, which, as I said, was an enormous shop. And if we didn't have it, we would always direct them to Foils or to Waterstones or later on to Borders when it was here for that short period or to really specialist independent shops. So there was a sense that if we didn't have it somewhere within five minute walk would have that book for you. So it was a really sort of special time to still be part of that thriving London literary bookshop scene. Booksellers could have their own sense of autonomy over a specific section. So you would have booksellers who were buying the film books. You would have booksellers buying for sort of social sciences, philosophy and economics and so on. And they would know exactly what was in their section, be really well versed in, you know, special areas. And also, um, again, be able to hand sell. And that's not to say that that doesn't happen now because there are many independent bookshops and actually within the now, you know, fairly substantial Waterstones um, chain, which includes Blackwells and Foils now. Um, there are lots of individually brilliant booksellers, but still it's the case that 60% of books are bought online. And to have that monopoly by those online or that online retailer of Amazon doesn't feel like a very healthy thing for the market because readers and customers just aren't able to visibly browse in the way that they used to be able to. So exposure is minimised, I think, for an awful lot of books. And it's just gradually led to this sort of polarisation. And we used to think of the market as being perhaps um, 20% of the authors making 80% of the financial return. And now it's really gone to more of a 10% of authors making 90% of the return. And obviously there are wonderful you know, sort of success stories and magical stories about small presses. And we'll go on, I'm sure, to talk about some of those examples. But the polarisation is just not healthy as it as it wouldn't be really in any kind of business. Um, so I see that as being a sad thing, really, if I'm honest. Um, on the other hand, of course, the ability to be able to buy a book immediately within seconds of having listened to someone give an interview or seen someone give an interview or read a review is incredible. And now there is more of a range of competition online, even though Amazon is still very dominant. Um, you know, you can buy from bookshop.org or you can buy from Waterstones. So that ability for many people when a bookshop, a local bookshop perhaps is, is inaccessible is terrific. So it's a real, I'd say it's a real mixture. Um, but it's a worry that uh, to have this kind of market dominance, really, of anything. So that's the main issue as I see it. What do you think independent bookshops can do to draw people back into the physical experience of buying books? Well, I think they, I think that they, they do it a lot. To be honest, I think the indies over the COVID pandemic probably showed what is possible. I mean, my local independent. Village Books was incredible and you'd phone or email them and they would cycle around the books that evening and you know there was the desire to make that work they work incredibly hard the profit is is slim really 
Um, but they do it because they love it and they believe in what they're selling, making a big difference. I think it really does differ region to region. So I think, you know, events work for some places. Outreach to schools works in some places. Making readers, making customers feel part of that community and part of the success of a book, I think that can be go a long way. I think if people feel a sort of personal investment in something's success that's something that people want to be able to replicate and I think being honest about the fact that the industry is an industry there's not a a dirtiness to talking about the financial side of it it can only exist if there is a financial side of it and I think one of the big points in this country that we fail to acknowledge a lot of the time is that books are very very cheap particularly compared to North America, Australia, France, almost anywhere else, we have got to a situation where we have effectively devalued what a book is and stands for and the number of people involved in that. And as a result, the pressure on people working within the publishing industry from you know author right through to bookseller is quite acute because there's just not a huge amount of money in the pot. Um, when I was a bookseller, I was selling books 20 years ago for $7.99, $8.99 in paperback. And they're only a couple of pounds more than that now. And I think about what I would pay for a glass of wine 20 years ago, and it's at least doubled. And everybody's perfectly happy on the whole to go out and spend that money. So, you know, I I completely acknowledge and respect that we're in a very tricky financial situation at the moment. But actually, books are still incredibly good value and on the whole, very cheap. And I think that is something that as an industry, we've got to grapple with because, you know, there are often lots of articles in the bookseller about authors or editors or people in publishing departments feeling under pressure. And a lot of that is just to do with the economics of it. And I think it's something that we have to understand despite it being, you know, uh, a creative industry, you know, having this kind of cultural weight, which then feels to some people at odds with talking about the the business and economic side of it. Could we roll back to your own career now and then this move that you made to go to America? Um, how did that come about? Uh, and in particular, how did it work in terms of having a visa and, and permission to work in the US? So honestly, I was doing a stock check in the Blackwell's Tran Crossroads, and my boyfriend phoned me up and said that he'd been offered a job transfer to America, to New York, and if we got married, then I would be eligible for a work permit, and would I like to go? So I said yes, and um, three months later, we were there, and the terms of my work permit were that I wasn't able to look for a job until I got there. So we arrived and then I applied for it. And then once that came through, I was then able to look for a job. Did you have to go through the sort of questionnaire process with green cards and making sure that you actually knew each other and you weren't just getting married for the right to work? So it wasn't a green card. It was just like a work permit. No, I mean, I remember sitting in the American embassy and whoever it was was interviewing us, asked for our marriage certificate. And they were like, oh, it was yesterday then or whenever it was, you know, last week or something. 
but beyond that no I mean Leo had he had the job offer in hand and his work were paying for our transfer so we were in a fortunate situation like that I don't remember there being any difficulties about it and what was your experience then of working as as an assistant there? I want to make sure that I'm pronouncing the agency right. Is it Janklu or yes. Yanklu? Janklu. So 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 working there, what was what was your experience of your kind of initial forays into agenting? Well, I mean, I arrived and I'd been a bookseller for four years and I'd never worked in an office really. I couldn't type. Um I think I got the job on the basis of having an English accent and that being an appealing thing in American literary agency, honestly. Um, so it was fascinating to go from really one end of the of the publishing chain, the book selling um, and buying end, through to the sort of discovery and championing end. And I loved it. I fell really hard for the, the sort of prospect and promise of finding someone and working with them very closely editorially and nurturing them through a process and then selling their work and that wasn't as an assistant that wasn't something that I was doing myself alone at that point I was working with the agents there and helping them um but it it that kind of those years that you spend uh, as an assistant are just invaluable because you're just watching and listening and learning and you know I had incredible experiences like speaking to Gore Vidal on the phone nearly every day as he'd phone up for his daily chat and sifting through endless manuscripts that would be left on my my desk by many of the agents at the end of the day. And I became very quick at reading and making judgments. And it's, you know, it's an incremental confidence building sort of career, I think, really. And it's so driven really by instinct. And that's just something that you collectively take on and learn what did Gore Vidal want to talk about every day and what um by extension did that teach you about the sort of agent uh author relationship so he had recently lost his long-term partner and they had moved back from Italy to he'd moved back to America he was living in LA so whenever it was that he woke up in LA I don't know nine in the morning or something he'd phone at 11 or 12 New York time and he was lonely and his agent was someone who was a constant um and yeah I mean it you know that was a sort of extreme situation in a way but you forge very close and long-lasting relationships with the authors you represent and everyone has different demands and needs and ways of working and you sort of have to balance those and manage time and expectation of course but you know Gore was a literary legend so how could you not have a chat with him every day um yeah clearly if if that was the case with every author you represented you wouldn't have time to do any work but as an assistant I enjoyed it very much kind of on the same subject do you think it's reasonable of of writers you know perhaps don't have Gore Vidal's stature or, or fame to expect to have a kind of quasi-pastoral relationship with their agents or do you think that's you know an, an unhelpful or an unrealistic expectation to go into that relationship with honestly I think it's it really varies agent to agent and author to author every author needs and wants a different kind of relationship if I'm honest and um 
it's a very it's a very personal relationship in the sense that I think the key things are having a shared vision and shared ambition and sometimes that means that you may work extraordinarily closely editorially and you naturally then just that unfolds into a friendship um and that's the way I think people work anyway in any kind of industry it sometimes just evolves like that so it's very personality led and I think some authors very much like a clear and distinct distance from um an agent and it for, for it to be just very professional and straight and some agents like that too. Um, I feel like it honestly just differs on a case by case basis. So there's not, I don't think there should ever be an expectation that that level of pastoral care will be there. And of course, it is not your responsibility to manage someone's life. It's your responsibility to try and get them the best possible deal, to get help guide them to get their work in the best possible state and offer choice and, and yeah, I think good guidance but inevitably sometimes pastoral care comes into that too because we're all human and then after your stint in new york you moved back to london and started your own list uh, we've had discussions with uh, other agents on the show and they've said a similar thing in terms of making that step up from assistant to agent or associate it's helpful to move agencies because it's a sort of fresh start and you're seen therefore as just an agent rather than someone who previously had a sort of administrative role is that was that part of the motivation for you as well or was it just a case of logistics and needing to come back to the UK it was just logistics really um I decided that I wanted to have children and I didn't really want to have the six weeks US maternity leave and the 10 days holiday and be far away from my family so those sort of logistics jumped in the way quite practically. And I think I felt that we'd lived there for three years, which was a good amount of time to feel as though it had got under your skin without feeling alienated from coming back home. Um, and so I did that. And a friend of mine had opened a very small local to me literary agency and Whilst he couldn't really offer me a job, what he could offer me was good guidance and use of all their kind of back office. And um, I was able to walk down the road to Brixton and go to to use a space away from having a small child. So I did that on a very ad hoc basis. And honestly, I just worked incredibly hard in the evenings and at the weekends and whenever I could squeeze in a bit of time here and there. And I built a list, um, which now sort of strikes me as a really um, very ambitious thing to do from nothing and having no sort of reputation within, you know, London publishing really. But I just worked really hard and had a clear sense of what I wanted to do and the sorts of books I wanted to try and represent and it worked. And I think my very first book deal that I did was with Tim Spector, who has just recently published his fifth book, Food for Life, which has been a huge bestseller. And he has become something of a sort of household name with his COVID symptom tracker app during the pandemic and the Zoe app and so on. But that was my really my first 
formal book deal that I did alone. So we always um, ask about money on the podcast and, and how that side of it all works. So when you were doing that, is that right? So you were not salaried, but you were on a kind of eat what you kill uh, arrangement or how did how did that piece work? Well, it's the same basis that an associate, um, someone who's on an associate basis would work. So it's um, you get a proportion or percentage of the commission. And then I wondered um, how you found clients, particularly at that point, but also, you know, by extension now. And I saw that you set up a prize to help sort of get new people through through the door. Could you talk a little bit about both of those pieces? Sure. So, yeah, so back then, um, this was sort of 12 years ago or so, I knew that I had to show off something different in order to attract people because I wasn't an established agent or with a big agency. So I set up a prize for unpublished um, authors, but the manuscripts didn't have to be complete. So I sifted through hundreds and hundreds of them alone. And I found some, some really great ones, actually. And um, one of those books was a partial. It was, I think, around 30,000 words at the time. And it was brilliant. And I love voice-driven fiction. And it had a very distinct voice. And, um, and I phoned up the author and said I thought it was extraordinary, but that I thought it was really very short. And he said at the time, well, I think that's probably just it, really. That's, you know, that's as long as it's going to run to. But we met up and discussed and I had some ideas and obviously he had some. And he went away and wrote more and I we back and forth a little bit. And um, I remember distinctly him sending in the full draft. And I was quite heavily pregnant with my second child and sitting down to read it. And I read it in one sitting and sobbed my heart out. And my husband sort of looked at me and um, I, he then read it and sobbed his heart out. And I knew at that point that it was ready to send out and that it was going to be one of the most talked of books that year. And so that book was called The Shock of the Fall by Nathan Filer. And it went on to win many, many prizes that year, including the Costa Book of the Year. So it was, you know, it was a thrill to be part of something which then became such a phenomenon at a really early stage. And in terms of finding authors now, um, so a lot of authors still just email, you know, direct me. Um, my email is on, you know, my website page or the agency website page. We're all pretty easy to find. Um, and most of the time I'm open for submissions. If I'm closed, it's because I've got too many manuscripts to edit at that time. So I take a pause. Um, lots of the manuscripts that I take on are still taken on in that kind of traditional way. Um, but now at this point, lots of them are recommendations via authors I already represent. Um, they may, may, may have met someone or someone on a course who's taught and met me or um, it might be someone who has been looking in the acknowledgements of books that I've represented. So it's a, a sort of real range of, of routes to representation. Um, but I'm still really open-minded and, you know, eager to read things that I know nothing about and from people I know nothing about.
We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. A big question that we often have with with writers, I suppose with agents as well, is is what is the best way for a, an aspirant writer to make contact or to, to go about securing representation? And it sounds from what you're saying that you you know you have taken on a reasonable amount of stuff via the unsolicited manuscript route, right? Because it seems in other cases, and we've had writers themselves who are quite critical of taking that as a route, saying that you know the chances are very slim that you really need to try and get an, an introduction or, or a way through. Thinking, I suppose, with your own experience, but also more widely within the industry, what what do you think is is best practice for uh, someone at the start of their career who's looking to secure representation? Well, I suppose the thing is that if everybody relied on nepotism, we would still have this very narrow representation within publishing, which would, I think, be incredibly wrong and sort of backwards looking, really. Um, So I don't take, you know, someone with a connection to someone else any more seriously than I would do someone whose email and manuscript just pops into my inbox, you know, in half an hour's time. I think what is honestly, I I really judge it on is a compelling, succinct, confident, enticing email, which sums up the essence of the book, which I, I, I think so many writers don't quite grapple with the purpose of the book, whether that's fiction or non-fiction, literary or commercial, there still has to be an underlying sense in your mind as a writer of what the what you want someone to take from it. What kind of conversation do you want a reader to then go away and have? And why should a book, why should a publishing team and an agency really care? And I think being able to articulate that in a confident and succinct way is you're part of the way there. Um, because if you've caught my attention and made it feel original and enticing, then the likelihood is I'm going to straight away click open and read. Um, And I think people don't quite realise that that's such a fundamental part of it and so often neglect to spend time on that and neglect to really contemplate and interrogate themselves, you know, what it is they're writing. What's what lies at the heart of that story? Because everyone else along the line, every other person involved in the chain of publication will have to be able to articulate that. So if as a writer you can't, you're kind of that's you're on you know shaky ground, I'd say. So that is my single biggest suggestion to anyone seeking representation is to make sure they know exactly how to how to sum up the heart and the essence and purpose of their book. Does that link back to your book buying days, do you think, when you were being presented with these sort of reams and lists of books that are coming out that you had to make quick decisions about, that the ones that you could quickly grasp the sort of essence, as you say, of them, those were, those were the ones you would go for? I think often, because, you know, they can be experimental or voice-led. It doesn't, the form doesn't matter. But, but 
how you know what's on the back of the book does matter because that's what we all pick up and look at in the first instance isn't it it's a flavor and a feeling it's an ambition that's articulated really beautifully or or it's a proposition or it's it's something that forces you to stop and look and think and those are the things that you know i think we are all drawn to and again it doesn't matter if it's a thriller or uh, a novel in verse you know you can feel enticed into reading either in the same way if that initial proposition and submission letter is 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 really appealing and that's the same and the same goes for me when i'm sending out someone's work to a number of publishers i want for that publisher to immediately think oh my goodness i've got to just stop everything and this is the thing i'm going to read tonight or just right now you joined Convalent Walsh in 2013. Um, how did that come about? And then also what was going on? What stage was that in, in the, the sort of union between Convalent Walsh and, and Curtis Brown? What point in that progression did you join up? So I was looking to move to, to a bigger agency with a lot of other agents, really, and more back office and different kind of support for my authors and for myself. And Claire and Patrick, who had set up the agency, had already begun talks with with Johnny Geller and Curtis Brown. So my coming on board um, coincided with that and all happened at the same time. So um, I think, in fact, it was sort of announced, I don't know, maybe the same month even. Um, So I was aware entirely that I was joining not just Cumberland Walsh as it was then, but, but Curtis Brown. What's the relationship between the two agencies like in practice? You share offices, is that right? Yeah, we're, so we are um, wholly owned by Curtis Brown, who is now, we're now wholly owned by United Talent Agency. And the way I see it, that CNW, as it's now evolved, Patrick left and so we became CNW, um, is, is a little bit like having an imprint within a publisher. So we have a, you know, we have our own rights team and um, we operate distinctly within the business, but we are also sharing everything in terms of our office and legal and account and support systems and um, media rights systems and so on with Curtis Brown. So I honestly, I sort of think I feel like I've got the best of both worlds. We have a really collegiate tight team at CNW, which feels still like a kind of boutique aspect to it and then we've got the weight and power of a of a big agency behind us which is very useful particularly when it comes to legal and contracts and media another question that often comes up when we talk to writers and agents is is the relative merit again particularly at the start of your career of having a kind of young hungry agent who may not have that much uh kind of established name in the industry but is really on the make uh, and it's likely to have quite a lot of, of time for new writers and someone who's who is much more established, who's much more of a name, but who you're going to get less of their bandwidth. You alluded earlier to, you know, when you when you came back to the UK and kind of made a made a standing start of it. But what do you think of the, the relative merits of those two models? I mean, it's difficult because. I feel like I'm neither the sort of. I don't know, I still feel like a kind of newbie, really, if I'm honest. Sort of maybe that's just something that never goes away. And I'm always hungry and always 
hope that I'm eager to work with new writers. Um, I mean, admittedly, you know, I have more authors on my list than I had to do a decade ago, but I think probably I can also make quicker and more decisive um, decisions and feedback and feel more confident about doing so. And I feel like I can also um, quite easily reach the people within the publishing world who can make books work in a big way. And um, so much of the business is about matchmaking and it's really important to have a great rapport and respect within the industry. Um, so that's something that you build up over a period of time. Um, but equally, of course, there are, you know, young agents who don't have many clients on their hands and are able to sometimes offer up a huge amount of time. Um, it really, again, differs on a on an author by author basis. But I still, an awful lot of the books I work on, particularly nonfiction, they start with a, a conversation in my office or elsewhere and we build a proposal from start to finish and we do drafts and there's you know I, there's no expectation on my part that everything comes polished and perfect to me and in fact I think I have only ever taken on one thing that I have not changed editorially. Could we now talk about some of the books that you have taken on that you um, sent over before the interview? So maybe if we start with um, Black Butterflies, um, a novel, how did that, if you just walk us through how that came about, you know, the process of getting it ready to send out to publishers and then how you landed on Duckworth as the best home for, for that book? So, so this is a book which is set during the siege of Sarajevo and draws heavily on the author Priscilla Morris's own family story. Um, and um, this came to me via a recommendation. Um, she had a friend in publishing and it, who recommended several agents, and um, I don't remember how many offers Priscilla had of representation, but there was certainly more than me. Anyway, we got on very well, and I gave her my sort of editorial suggestions, and as I said earlier on, um, that kind of shared vision is really crucial. So um, I believe that from the outset, we, we wanted the book to be the same thing and to stand for the same thing. So Priscilla and I went back and forth, not for a huge amount of time, probably for maybe five months um, and did some editorial work. I then sent it out. Um, and this was in the kind of COVID pandemic days when I think so many people were struggling and struggling to concentrate or find time. Um, and in any case, the book was not picked up by any of the um, mainstream big traditional publishers. So I went and sent it out to some smaller publishers. And one of those smaller publishers was Duckworth. And at the time, or just before my sending it, Rowan Cope had joined, who had worked at many big um, mainstream publishers and took with her a huge amount of experience and knowledge. And she immediately fell in love with it and totally got what Priscilla was doing and what I loved and published it beautifully. But um, such is 
such is the challenge in finding readers of literary fiction and debut literary fiction in particular, that when it was published, it had, you know, a flurry of brilliant endorsements by fellow writers who, you know, not who Priscilla knew, but who we'd sent it out to and hoped that we'd get those endorsements from. But it was, you know, it was a sort of relatively quiet start to its publication. And then over the course of the last 12 months, it's been um, subsequently um, shortlisted for four prizes, one of which is the Women's Prize shortlist announced next month. Um, so it's been, you know, a triumph really in that sense. And so exciting to be part of something which, you know, started off as a as a relatively modest deal with a brilliant but small independent. And now we've just done a big book deal in America and other translation territories, which has been a joy. So it's it's a sort of perfect example of the power of prizes and the power of word of mouth and how, yeah, booksellers can get on board too. I was reading kind of related to that, some of the coverage of this big antitrust lawsuit in the US about a you know possible merger, I think it was between Penguin and another house. And some of the points that that the the government lawyers who were opposed to that were saying was about this independent versus majors. And they they went as far as to say that, you know, independent publishing is really just a farm league for writers to to go to the big league, that every writer wants wants to go that way. And it seems that, you know, this part of part of your story seems to uh, confound that to say that this was a big success via an independent house, but at the same time, the the sort of happy ending you allude to is a is a deal with a with a major, right? Albeit in the US. I mean, what's your thought? What's your thoughts on that? On the, the I suppose the merits and disadvantages of independent publishing versus majors. That's majors. A good observation. I mean, I suppose what that has meant is that it's enabled Priscilla to then be able to take time and take a sabbatical from her work and write um, in purely financial terms. That's enabled her to do that in a way that it just wouldn't have otherwise. Um, but that's not to say that when an author is successful with an independent publisher that you would want to move them for their next book. She hadn't been published in America before, so this is a new deal. And and, and Knopf, which is part of Penguin Random House in, in, in the States, will publish Black Butterflies next year. So it won't even have been published there. So um, I suppose my point is that she will have a different experience on diff both sides of the Atlantic. But the fact is that the independent publisher here was the one that helped ensure that success. So I think there should always be, you know, uh, a noted loyalty on that part as well. I mean, it's so much relationship based and you know, I very much believe that it was Rowan at the helm, you know, pushing forward. It was her championing that at Duckworth, which helped enable the success. But having said that, you know, clearly four different groups of, of judges at prizes decided that too. So there was a kind of consensus, really. Um, but I see the value of independent publishing as being enormous. I mean, I suppose on the bigger end of indie publishing here in the UK, Faber, is one of the finest publishers. They champion their authors incredibly well. They publish impeccably. They pour so much energy and hope, care and love into the authors they publish. Many people would rather be published by them than one of the huge conglomerates. 
Can we move on to another book as well that you sent over? Um, Christy Watson's The Language of Kindness, which is a, a sort of medical memoir. Where was the genre sort of at that point when, when the submission came in? So, so the submission did not come in. I met Christy and she'd previously written two novels and she was looking for an agent who could represent her both for fiction and nonfiction. And um, she said to me, I'd like someday to write about nursing, but I just don't know where to start. And um, so I said, well, well, we'll, we'll, write about your world you know it's there it's there in your mind and so often I think people think that what is um just commonplace and everyday for them is not interesting enough for everybody else um we're in terms of where we were at that time Henry Marsh's book Do No Harm had been published and had done well and I think there had been a small number of other medical memoirs if we sort of call them that um And I had been very consciously thinking about the need for a nurse and a female nurse and to something to counter the very kind of male and slightly macho stories that um, those medical memoirs seem to largely exude. Um, And I say that with a lot of respect for Do No Harm because I thought that was a great book. And Christy and I talked about what that book could be and how it would be taking the reader by the hand and pushing open the doors of A&E and in a dramatic and loving way, introduce them to what a nurse does on a day-to-day basis. So we kind of built that world, you know, over the course of several drafts. And it was so clear to me that she would be able to do that with ease and grace and beauty and it would be profound and it was published and around the same time that Adam Kay book This Is Going to Hurt was sold and that was published first and he had already got a sort of relatively sizable following from his um from his comedy um but establishing Christie it it felt quite straightforward really because I think there was such a desire and an openness to understand what it was like to be in those shoes and she does it with such immediacy and um, eloquence that it immediately became a bestseller and then yeah in paperback went on to become a number one bestseller. When you send a proposal out to publishers and it does generate a lot of interest do you have a sense of to what extent that's a, a function of what is in that particular package and to what extent it is a basis of your reputation that you've established over a, a longer period of time of bringing work that is is successful to the table so put it another way if, if an editor sees like email from Sophie Lambert is like I, I you know I want to read this because it's from Sophie Lambert or you know it's because of what's in the, the email we had another agent on who talks about having like you know she said when I send things out publishers read it really quickly and they do that because of the reputation that I have built up over a a period of time I mean that you know that that's a sense of of the thing that's getting stuff it's a balance yes I would like to think that my submissions are prioritized and read pretty much immediately of course and I work incredibly hard to ensure that they are of the very highest quality and I will always take the time to do an extra draft I remember with Christy 
just about to send it out. And at night, I just thought there was just one little thing missing in my mind and I couldn't quite establish what it was. And then I realized and I phoned her up and I said, I just need you to write one extra paragraph. And it just the balance of it somehow was right. So I will always go the extra mile in terms of pushing a writer to to fulfill its, you know, the the proposal or novel um, in terms of its promise. Um, but no, I mean, it has to be that the material is first class. That has to be the most important thing. Of course, if that's then accompanied by a really persuasive letter and a passionate agent with a good track record, then I'm sure that that must help. Um, but, you know, it's no good me sending something half-hearted or second rate out. I would be kind of disappointed, really, if that was the um the route and I just I yes I want my my author's work to be prioritized but I want it to be prioritized not because of me but because of it being brilliant how unusual is um your sort of fastidiousness in terms of the of working with the author on the material we've had sort of a range of answers from agents on the show about how much work they will do editorial on on manuscripts and proposals so at CNW I think because we Claire and Patrick founded the agency with, you know, a handful of authors. It was all about nurturing and all about development and all about quality. So it's sort of in, I I don't know, I think it's just um, an innate part of all of our approach towards agenting is to be very hands-on. It's also really enjoyable. So um, I'm surprised when people don't do it just because I think it's, incredibly satisfying but also um intellectually very stimulating uh it does differ some some agents just feel like that's not their forte and would rather you know go go all out and do just impeccable sales pitches i mean i would hope that i'm able to do both um i think that sending out a small number of excellent submissions is far far better for me personally than sending out many and hoping that some of them work so you know I see it as my duty to ensure that the work that the authors um, present the publishers via me is is top quality so even if that means being difficult on them and going back and taking more time I'd rather do that personally. And with your pay structure now, is it a mixture of salary and, and commission? Because another thing that we heard in another... No, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on a salary. But you must, do, do you have a bonus though? Yeah. Yeah. Because the point that we heard in, in some other interviews is that in the US, it's more common for agents to, to be on a pure commission basis, particularly as they're more senior. I mean, that wouldn't be an option at our agency. I think, you know, it's a big agency and there needs to be a kind of precedent. And um, we all do benefit hugely from the sort of support system that the agency offers both the authors and us. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's very largely salary based. Presumably that also helps in terms of managing the amount of you know commissions and things that you've got going out at the time you know you're you're able to focus on quality because you're not keeping one eye on what your income might be from commission yes although you- so I meant I meant submissions in the first case not commission there's an expectation obviously that comes with being part of 
a team like CNW or Curtis Brown, um, that you will continue to um, to strike excellent competitive deals and bring in good money for your authors and commission for the agency. So there's certainly an expectation for that. Um, I suppose it's different than if you're self-employed or working on a commission-only basis. Um, but personally, having done both, I like I like the stability and I like the support that I get as a result of working there a lot. We're coming up against our time limit now, but a final question for me would be about this um, point of generating ideas, you know, yourself. So, like you mentioned with um, with the, the nursing memoir, how how common an experience is that for you, and is that something that you enjoy doing? I love it. <laughs> um, it's really fun. Um, I, d- I wouldn't, you know, so for example, with that, it's more encouraging someone and having those conversations so that someone feels confident enough to write about something specific. And um, sometimes it's about approaching someone and saying, have you thought about writing this? But sometimes it's also about trusting your instinct. And if a proposal comes in and the writing is great and the subject is great but the structure or the approach don't feel right it's about saying that and maybe starting over again and I've done that quite a few times um and some some authors don't feel like it's the right thing for them which I really respect and others really like the kind of rigor and um the intellectual sort of back and forth and fun really that can be had from that um and I think the older I get the more I know the kinds of books that I'm able to grapple with and add real input and value to and as a final question for me is there a project or two that's coming out in the next couple of months that you'd like to spotlight so I would say on Thursday this week the second novel by Guy Gunaratne is being published um Guy's first novel in our Mad and Furious City was published some maybe five years ago now and won the Dylan Thomas Prize and was longlisted for the Booker and won several other prizes and Mr Mister is the name of of that second book coming out um it's a really brave bold voice-led book like sort of no other and yeah I think it's brilliant brilliant well Sophie, best of luck for for that and for all of your other projects going forward. And thanks for being a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes. Oh, well, I hope it's useful and helpful. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Sophie Lambert. She's on Twitter at Agent Sophie L. And you can read more about her list at cwagency.co.uk forward slash agent forward slash Sophie hyphen Lambert. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Sophie? I think we've been, we've had a kind of rich streak of literary agents on the show recently. Um, And it's really interesting to, you know, get, just kind of get their perspective of of how things work. I thought it was impressive with her that she'd come back to London and kind of started from a, from a, not from a completely standing start, but she'd had this experience in the US, but really um, built up a list on her own. and just to be saying off air, I know she's she's particularly well regarded by some of her client lists. So yeah, I thought it was again kind of very interesting and hopefully something that that contained quite a lot of 
really informative material for people who are at the start of their writing careers. What about you, Rachel? Absolutely. I um I enjoyed her reflection on the different roles that an agent plays, both sort of personal and professional, um, in relation to Gore Vidal in particular, but in, in general, you know, agents are often a sounding board, but they can become a confidant as well as your first editor and the first person that gives you feedback and takes your work seriously. So um, I thought that was really insightful and, um, and interesting to hear about. What have you been up to? I had a, I had lots of deadlines, basically. <laughs> um, I was, I had to work over the weekend and I had an interview today and I've got a deadline at the end of the week, but hopefully then this sort of perfect storm of work will, will, will finally be, um, be stopped and I can uh, have a bit more time off. Yeah, sorry to be slightly incoherent, but it's just been quite intense. What about you, Rachel? You're going to make fun of me. I did a reporting trip in my beloved homeland. I was up in Manchester last week. Really? I was, yes. I'm working on, what was the assignment? I'm working on a piece about a new cultural institution there and the sort of possibilities of regeneration. Yes, any excuse? but I, I promise to be even-handed. <laughs> anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Akem. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. You can support us via our crowdfunding page on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.